This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, lovely. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. I have enormous pleasure in introducing my guest tonight. He is an actor, writer, magician, extraordinary all-round sort of a man, Andy Nyman! Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Actor, writer, magician. That doesn't quite cover it, actually, Andy. <laughs> no, because you are extraordinarily versatile and yet yeah. so good at all of those things. Thank you. Um, I'd quite like to find out the thing you can't do, but this might not be the place. <laughs> but thank you very much for being a guest. And what book have you chosen? I have chosen uh, a book that I bought when I was 11. And I, I cherish this. It's called Monsters of the Movies by Dennis Gifford. And that is my copy from when I was a kid. Did you buy it with your own money? I did. It was an almighty 45p. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think like a lot of people of my generation who will appreciate this, that felt like a lot. <clears throat> I'd gone back a couple of times to look at it because I was scared, very scared of it but also very captivated by it, which has sort of been my relationship with horror, which has been an enduring passion throughout my life and subsequently my, a lot of my work. Well, it's interesting you say that, because one of the first things that struck me, and it's the first time I'd seen this book, mm. is that the cover itself is quite scary. Yes. Dennis Gifford, the guy who put this together, as we will talk about later, was... was prolific doesn't quite cover it extraordinary man yeah. and and this must have been the work of a week for him because he wrote so many books about all aspects of of cinema and particularly fascinated by horror but as i say that the cover of it is actually unnerving it is and I, I will describe it but i'll give a bit of context as well because so this case so i was 11 so this came out in 77 and there was a, an absolute cultural sort of explosion around that time a fascination with monsters that crossed over sort of from universal monsters into hammer there was like the hammer um because around then as well was dracula ad 72 was just about to come out so horror and hammer had sort of got a bit sexy that's how we'll differentiate ourselves from universal is that a we're full color and bloody and b it, it was all a bit, ooh, you know, it was a bit raunchy. There were um, a lot of negligees involved. There were a I lot of negligees, yeah. So there was a book that, from, again, for my generation, this came out in 72. So I would look at this cover, which in the horror world is sort of iconic. And what's that one called? This is another Dennis Gifford book. This is a pictorial history of horror movies. And this cover is a, a genuine work of art. But it is properly scary. So it is a death head green, a sickly yellow. In the centre of it is Lon Chaney's Frankenstein, Dracula. You've got all the sort of universal monsters, but the depictions of them are, are very scary. 
So I would sort of do that thing that you do as a kid where you <laughs> where you know you're sort of coming up to something you don't like so you do that softening your eyes as you quickly walk past it in the shop and move on so I couldn't quite look at that but you would also as you got past it just sort of have a quick glance and then move off how long dare I look at it so then when this came out um, You're saying this is more accessible. This is much more accessible because they're cartoon versions. But cartoon doesn't quite do it. They're much more illustrated. So you've got Frankenstein that I always thought was a Native American, actually, because it's got the electric shock on the front. Looks a bit like a sort of headdress. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, in the centre, you've got the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's the really scary one. Yeah. Well, the look of a monster is a very interesting thing uh jeremy dyson who is my writing partner we wrote a play called ghost stories that started here and then we made a film of it when you dig into the design of a monster and what it is that gives you that gut reaction it's quite an interesting area and there there were a couple of pictures in here we'll talk about which genuinely frightened me but what they tend to be is a subversion a, a perversion of humanity a perversion of the things that make you feel safe and what's absolutely incredible about those almost never bettered universal horrors is the designs of them are just iconic so every one of them they don't feel ludicrous you can see the humanity within it and where it's gone wrong which is what makes them so powerful so these drawings that creature from the black lagoon what makes it so icky is it is fish-like but it's also human its eyes are piercing red but they're still the shape of a man's eyes the lips (laughs) are just too big and the tongue is bright red all of those things together you just know there's a wrongness about them it suggests slime doesn't it it is it it is a slimy look that's for sure (laughs) yeah Technical term. Technical term. <laughs> did, did this book join a collection then, or was it the start of one? This was the start of a collection. Start. I almost brought another one of mine um, that, <laughs> bizarrely, M&S brought books out. And I bought this in M&S. It's the St. Michael <laughs> Book of Horror Films. And it's large format. It was 75p, and this came out in 82. And it's full colour. And it's, I mean, it's so incongruous that M&S was selling this next to pants, you know. But I just couldn't believe it when I saw it. So that was like, that was another of those books. But this did start my collection. And I must confess, I thought, I must reread it. And I realised I've never read this. Not only have I never read it... I couldn't, when I wanted to read this now, I couldn't really read it. But what was amazing is the impact this book has had on me is almost entirely pictorial. I read the blurb in the front, and every time I went to try and read these, I thought, I'll have a go. (laughs) Ah, It wasn't really a book for reading. I tell you what's what's extraordinary about it, because obviously I I have read it, and... um, (laughs) 
<laughs> the, the pictures are extraordinary yeah. and, and again have that effect even now yes. of slightly a book I wouldn't want to leave lying around in case small people saw it yeah. and, and it has a particular magnetism that sort yeah. of thing doesn't it I remember my mother had a book called um, The Eyes of Bridie Murphy which was about a woman who purported to have been reincarnated many times over and that book I'm, I'll post the cover on, on Instagram because that book had a person with the eyes were very prominent. Mm. And I must have been about 11 at the time she was reading it. And I was frightened of wherever that book was in the house. Yeah. And yet I really wanted to read it. So I did. I love that, you see, because I read so many of, not The Eyes of Bridie Murphy, but I read so many <laughs> of those horror books because, again, you're sort of at the dawn of the James Herbert books and all those kind of ludicrous horror books and the pan books of horror, which have got the most terrifying covers I mean terrifying they've really got that tales of the unexpected feel about them so I would buy those books and cover them in brown paper (laughs) because I didn't want to see the cover so I'd read them at night and I swear to god this is true I'd read them in bed and then I'd throw it (laughs) on the floor so I couldn't even though it was covered in brown paper and then get it pick it up in the morning how did the rest of your family react to this? Uh, well, describe the, describe the Nyman household. Okay, so, and I understand this now, but I also was forged in the fire of the video nasty. The explosion of VHS, of home video, unbelievable. The gates opened on films, world cinema. It was like a whole education of not just horror, everything. And it was completely unlicensed. And the government passed a law banning 72 videos that they considered nasties. It was book burning. They would go to these shops, people were arrested. Uh, They would go to these video shops and little garages and they'd collect these videos. There's fantastic stories of the police f***ing it up and taking best little whorehouse in Texas and stuff (laughs) like that, stuff that they just got wrong that they thought that sounds like it's a video nasty. But they would collect these videos and they would take them away and burn them. I mean, it's really an extraordinary period. Anyway... I used to buy VHS magazines that would have these adverts in for these horror movies. Fantastic, lurid, ludicrous, ridiculous sets of artworks. But I used to cut all these things out and put them in scrapbooks. I loved them, but they were repellent. I mean, I remember very clearly, I'd have been about 15, my dad saying, you have got a morbid fascination with death. (laughs) So I threw these things away to prove, no, I don't, it's fine. It's just the fact they're filmed in a proper sort of mardy kid's way. You threw them away. Oh, do I regret that. (laughs) That is terrible. If anyone would like to chip in now, I'd be happy to see. I was just wondering if you actually felt too scared reading it. I know you threw it on the floor if you got a bit scared, but (laughs) did you ever say to your parents, this is just too scary, or to your friends, or was there a kind of physical reaction or anything to being too scared reading them at all? No, I never did, (laughs) because it's not like I would throw it on the floor and then get rid of it (laughs) I'd make sure in the morning I'd pick it up put it on my bedside cabinet ready for the next night so no I never got to the point where I felt no that's too much I've always loved it I love it when you see that in kids so I remember our daughter she used to love the Nancy Drew books and I remember she'd read one 
she, she sort of called us through and she was really sh- properly shaky because there'd been a thing in it that had scared her. <laughs> I was delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just great. <laughs> Uh, because I knew, because it's really healthy and really exciting, and I knew, and she still loves a mystery. She sort of progressed from that to Agatha Christie's and obsessively so with it, and still loves that, you know. So, yeah, I quite like it. <laughs> Funnily enough, Dennis Gifford's mother, when he was away doing national service, mm. got rid of a huge amount <gasps> of his... I know, that was his reaction too. And he was at school with Bob Monkhouse and they were writing partners for years. Wow. And did an act, in fact, where Bob Monkhouse was his straight man, impossible to imagine. Bob Monkhouse said afterwards that he, although he was a massive collector, I mean, he, they, were, yes. they had to get rid of tonnes of stuff. And I hope not... Get rid is the wrong word. Deal with tonnes of stuff when he died. But Bob Monkhouse said that he knew that for the rest of his life, Dennis Gifford was just trying to get that stuff his mother had thrown away. <laughs> which yeah. is really painful, isn't it? Wow, yeah. yeah. It is. Well, was it a bookish household? They'd sort of read bestsellers. So I've got their copies of the Bond books. I've got their first edition of Jaws. You know, that kind of stuff. But it's not like I was raised to be a reader. I wasn't. I was raised to go to the theatre and watch films. But did you read books alongside these? I read a lot of magic books and I dip in and out of a lot of Jewish comedy books you know my interests have all sort of remained the same but in terms of novels it's I might read one a year which I'm sort of embarrassed to admit I, I find it really difficult <laughs> the irony is having just written a novel just written one yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah and, it, and, it, and it's written by a writer but I think that part of that is storytelling as opposed to writing. So I I love, I know it sounds so glib, doesn't it, to say a good story, but I love nothing more than a story that subverts, that twists, that takes you on a journey, which is probably part of this absolute love, takes you on a journey that just you do not know where it's going and that can just thrill you. I love that. I tell you what's remarkable about this book, um, apart from the fact that, you know, it's, it's an A to Z of monsters and it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's as comprehensive as that can be for 45 pence between two <laughs> thin covers, but it's yeah. impressive. Yeah. What's really impressive are his praises of the films. I know. They're confined to two-thirds of the page maximum. Yeah. And they are really skillfully done. They tell you absolutely everything. And initially, of course, he's talking... I mean, it spans films made in the 20s right through to... I think the latest one is probably yeah, early like 80s. Yeah, it's like Count Yorga, I think, yeah. Um, but they are obviously progressively... And it's interesting you mentioned the thing about the sort of slightly salacious nature of the yeah. hammer because Dennis Gifford himself said that you could tell a hammer horror film because whereas in the olden days somebody would be cut or wounded, Hammer would always go to the blood. Mm. And he said that's the change. You know, mm. we didn't do that before... We allowed it to be thought about, but we mm. didn't actually show it. But his little praises of the plots are quite mir- miraculous, I think. Yeah. They're beautifully done. There's one in particular that, when I was dipping back into it, there's, there's only one page that I, I'm very sort of fastidious with the books. There's one that's got a pen mark on it. Yeah. But what's Isn't really... The there. Yeah. <laughs> is it was on a film that I must have seen it when I was 12, it was on, there used to be a thing called the Monday Film. Don't know, does anybody remember that? So it was Monday nights, you'd have the news, then at 9.25 it'd be the Monday Film. 
and then it was film night. So occasionally I'd be allowed to sort of stay up <laughs> and watch. And, and it was a brilliant BBC sort of, I mean, amazing stuff. Great film education, you know. And, um, and there was a film called um, The Abominable Dr. Fives, which is oh, the, yes, the one that's, that's got, the, yeah. got the pen mark on yeah. it. And there's a moment in that. And again, they're sort of outrageous films. Vincent Price, absolutely brilliant, amazing plotting that feels so insane but reveals itself to be so touching. And it's about a doctor and his wife have a car crash. They think he's died. He sort of survives. She uh, is rushed to hospital and dies in the operating theatre. So Fibes who manages to kind of cover himself and make himself recover as this sort of sub-skeletal human, decides he's going to take revenge on the nine surgeons who let her die. And he's going to do it by enacting the ten plagues on them. And I'll never forget watching this film. It's very bizarre, but it's really brilliant. But the frog's death is so <laughs> so odd and disturbing it's a fancy dress sort of ball and the surgeon that he's going to murder is given this frog's head to wear it's like a masked ball and this thing has like a clockwork mechanism and as soon as he puts it on this thing just sort of <laughs> and just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and it's so disturbing and, and brilliantly nightmarishly shot alongside this incredible beauty of the design, that juxtaposition of those two things so disturbed me. Slash, here I am talking about it, <laughs> 45 years later, I'm obsessing about it. Yeah, so that was the pen mark in there. Obviously, I was like, mm-hmm, mm, you know, and accidentally... Where's the pen mark? Oh, yes. Uh, just there. Yes. But that, they're really, you know, you'll be able to watch all of these things. The Abominable Dr. Fives. It's a really brilliant, brilliant piece of work, yeah. Well, they, they all are in their way. And yeah. it's also impressive how... I mean, Dennis Gifford was, was a... And I, I confess I had never heard of him before, but that's yeah. definitely my loss because he was an extraordinary <clears throat> archivist and a documenter of, of, mm. of all these different genres. But he also um, credits every single film properly and the actor. Yeah. And what's noticeable is how many... What's a better word? Good actors oh, yeah. were prepared to put on the terrible costumes and enact, you know, these these plots, which were, of course, far fetched. One hopes they are far fetched, yeah. you know, because that isn't. It's not real life. That's the whole point. Yeah. But they did attract quality. Yeah, it really did. And once you got into Hammer and stuff, we had a thriving, brilliant film industry. So you, you would get amazing talent coming over. And there was another horror company called Amicus who did the most brilliant thing, again, that we replicated on <laughs> Ghost Stories, which was a portmanteau film, rather like these Amicus films. Because what they realised was you could get amazing talent in your film because rather than them shooting an entire movie, you needed them for six days. So you'd get these actors who normally they'd never be able to get or afford. John Gielgud, 
who would come in and do four days and swan off again. It was like low commitment, easy to learn, yeah. you know, because it's hokey. <laughs> and yeah, and suddenly, you'd, you know, it would raise the material. But of course, these plots borrow endlessly from each other yeah. and, and reading them as I did, you know, uh, serially, you realise that, that they're obsessed with certain things. I mean, beating death is a big one. Yeah. Just generally cheating that idea, you know, either mm. it's a loved one or it's you. Out of the 26 monsters, only, only three are female. I don't know why, but they, they are. And, yeah. and also, there's an awful lot of appropriation of limbs. There are people who lose their limbs and get the wrong one attached again. <laughs> and, and I don't think I've read a book where glands and glandular comes up quite so often, because, not knowingly anyway, because, you know, there's, there's so many confections where, where they have to sort of transplant bits, and they say, yes. and he says, you know, they have a glandular reaction. Okay, <laughs> so that explains it. But it's also, it, it's such an insistence on the fact that this stuff matters. You know, to, undoubtedly, to get to Dennis, it mattered a huge amount. Well, I think, I think it does matter. I think yeah. it really matters. You know, there's, oh, it, it's really interesting horror because people are, not the general public, but in terms of um, the sort of clever people, there's a real snobbery about it and always has been, you know, because it's slightly looked down. It's a bit like broad comedies that, you know, it's fascinating in cinema, which is still only 150 years old or whatever it is, throughout its entire life, the only things that throughout wars, depressions, the only things that have consistently delivered financially again and again are horror and broad comedy. And they're the things that people just... Well, a lot, a lot of these films were made during the, the Second World War. Oh, absolutely. Which is, again, amazing, isn't yeah. it? That that's, that's what they were concentrating on. Well, it isn't sort of amazing, actually, I think. I think it makes absolute sense. It's a way of processing terrible stuff. Horror consistently stares in the face death and dealing with death and dealing with the death of a loved one and dealing with and confronting it and trying to push the envelope and ask questions and also it allows you to kind of do all of that in a sort of safe way. Now, occasionally, there are films that you watch. I mean, we watched a film recently that I wish I'd never seen. <laughs> I, I wish I could unsee it. You know, uh, it's a, an absolutely incredible film called Speak No Evil. It's the most brilliant, brilliant, brilliant psychological horror that from two minutes in you feel anxious beyond <laughs> words because it's so real. It's so You're not selling it, Andy, don't worry. Well, no, no trust nobody, me, because... Nobody here is thinking, I want to see that now. You don't know that. <laughs> That's true. Because what's brilliant is it's about a couple and, and they go on a holiday to a sort of... It's like a foodie holiday and they meet a, another couple and they get on and sort of say, oh, you should come and stay with us. And they kind of get, you know, they get a call saying, that was so nice of you a year ago, so we should come and stay with you. We'd love that. And they come and stay with them. And it's, the writing is so <laughs> superb and so brilliant that you, you get the couple's anxiety instantly because you relate to the amount of times in your life you haven't said, oh God, this doesn't feel right, does it? Let's not do this. Let's just not do it. And, and it's 
the film is about how far that can go before you actually say, <clears throat> no, no, no more, we're stopping. And it's too late? Well, I'm telling you, the last 15 minutes of oh, that no. film are... <laughs> that's not monsters, is it? I mean, it's monstrous. But again, that's the thing about monsters. <laughs> the, the best ones, you understand it. You, you, you know, the fact is... People are capable, as we know, of the most terrible, monstrous things, worse than anything that could be in these books. So that's the other reason these things work, is that you're dealing with that through the safety of, you know, looking at a vampire yeah. that's about feeding off other people for your own good. But having, having said that, at, at what stage, or maybe it hasn't happened, listening to your account of that film, when did this kind of, oh, I don't really want to read that book, but I will, but I'll put it in brown paper and I'm not sure. <laughs> when, when did that, that, when was that overcome by a kind of curiosity about we... why you feel that rather than just feeling it? Well, I think I've only, that, that really only came when I started writing, really. Oh, no, there was a book, there's a brilliant book by Stephen King called Dan's Macabre that's about his analysis of horror. That's when I started properly thinking about it. I think it changes as you get older without a doubt because the older you get, please God, your life has been okay. Your sense of being immortal leaves you as you start to see you are not immortal. <laughs> but you're programmed to feel, as you should do, immortal up until you're... 21, 22, 23 or whatever and then suddenly you start to realise hmm, okay and, and certainly the minute you get married or have kids when you move into the realm of realising it's not just about me now there are other people that I would die for the stakes raise so I think that all of that stuff pushes you or pushed me more towards analysis, as did what I feel about faith. All the things are sort of intertwined, really. The loss of your parents, you know, how that affects your faith, what you then think about death. What I mean, it's all... That's the other thing. I mean, so much of horror is steeped in religious belief. Yes, and lots of um, magic and lots of yeah. curses. But it almost sounds... Here you talk about it like that, that you know the things that truly frighten you but they're not in these pages anymore. This is almost a place of safety, isn't it? I yeah. mean, for a start, it's finite. You know, the lights are going to come back on. Yes. Literally, at some point. Plus, it's been devised and controlled by a whole load of people. Yeah. Actors, writers, everybody else involved in it. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. With ghost stories, that's what you want. You want people to come and scream and be scared and then go away. Having had a great roller coaster ride and maybe... It just makes you think about the stuff that we were writing that's underneath it. I think that's the other thing that's... Again, it's really easy to, to ignore with horror. Is It's sophisticated. It's really sophisticated stuff, even though often it feels like it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but the good ones, the ones that are iconic and survive, survive for a reason. You know, it really speaks to an audience. So these... Things. I mean, look, the page I just opened at. I mean, that is just bang it, Count Yorga. 
I mean, yes. that <laughs> image of that vampire is just like, Whoa, even on the page, you open it and you want yeah. to back away and that, from you it. You see, that's one of the ones I picked out too because that's a 1970s film. Yeah, and in was... the synopsis, it mentions an entourage of young women at his command. Yeah. And in the 70s, that, that was quite a theme, wasn't it? Having lots of young girls around. Yeah, there were. The negligee thing. And... Well, do you know what? Horror has always been push the envelope in terms of acceptance as well because that's the other thing in terms of lbgtq community they've always been very big in horror those hammer films lesbians was this (laughs) thing suddenly that was introduced in that world and it's always been very embraced within the wider world of entertainment has been forged through horror in terms of what's not acceptable, what's palatable for an audience to see. How, how do we make that work? It's always been pioneering. People often ask me what my regular London pub is, but that assumes there's a pub I can easily return to, so please stop asking that. London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In, in the book that, that you and your writing partner, Jeremy Dyson, have yeah. just written, The Warlock Effect, which is, as I said to Andy before, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to just tell you I really enjoyed this book. Because when I say it now, it sounds like showbiz. <laughs> but, I, but I did really enjoy it. But it, it has such a, a depth of complication. You know, mm. it asks a lot of the reader, and I think that's right. But it also has that sort of slightly playful quality you know it's about magic which is one of your other huge interests and and you are supreme at that so I'm I'm trying to find not that we need to finish on anything that has a resolution but I'm trying to find the the link between these things that that make the world seem different which magic does Mm. and often by deflecting and there's a lot about that in the book about how you're looking at one thing but actually something much bigger is happening over here and it also brings in other themes, you know, the, the Cold War and, and, and dislocation of people and how you feel when you are adrift from everything you know. So it's, all of that is very sophisticated. And I think Dennis would struggle to put that into one tiny paragraph. Yeah. And I wouldn't want him to. But I'm, I'm, I can hear that you are constantly fascinated by just pushing, just pushing to see what happens yeah. if you do that, what happens if this gives, if that doesn't give, where the strengths and weaknesses are, which are partly how we live mm. and how we think we're getting by, but also in the fact that most of us try and find that safe bit all the time, the bit in the middle. It, it's so interesting to hear that because the thing I was going to say, and then you ended by saying that safe bit, is the key thing, Jeremy Dyson, who I wrote Ghost Stories with, we met when we were 15 at Jewish summer camp. 
And we've been best friends ever since. And it's very interesting, the British Jewish experience, which is another big thing that is in the book. Uh, Very much our Jewish identity is in there. And my experience as a British Jew is always feeling like an outsider. Always being on the outside looking in. Never quite feeling safe. That's got worse over the years. And within that, being trapped in a weird bubble of... It's not like feeling like that as another type of immigrant or second-generation immigrant because you're visible if you're from a different country or have a different colour skin. So that outsider thing, again, no accident, this bleeds into horror hugely. So many of the great writers and directors of horror are Jewish. But that sense of being other, not being accepted, um, being alien, is all part of the same mix, you know. And when you get towards the end of the journey in the Warlock effect, you're uncovering stuff that is, for, for the two of us, deeply felt. But with the monsters, they enhance the alien effect mm. frequently with ugliness. Mm. That's a trope, isn't it? In, in most of the monsters, yeah. they have some, something disfiguring, something different. So it's a massively immediate effect. It's not subtle. It's not discovering. It's not out of a conversation. They present yeah. as different straight away. I mean, almost my favourite of all of them is Jekyll and Hyde. Is it? I've picked that out as a scary picture, that one. It is, it is a, yeah, a scary picture. <laughs> yeah. But uh, of all of them, I think one of the things that I love about Jekyll and Hyde as a story is it's the one I think maybe as a kid you have to do least work at to understand, oh, it's just about people. Yeah. When someone loses their temper, it's Hyde. You know, I mean, it's not hard to see that, how that relates in life. So that, I think, was a real gateway for me as well. Aside from amazing special effects, pioneering special effects in the early one. We have that in us. Yeah. If we only drink the wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a place for remakes of all of these films or should they stay where they were? I think there's a sort of gorgeous nostalgia to not only this book but that period because what goes hand in hand with a lot of these early ones is there is a sort of innocence to them that's just gorgeous. I mean, I'd be happy if they never remade anything ever again. I mean, I just think you just want to keep making... Just all you want is new stories, original new stuff, so that 50 years from now, some kid's going to look at a book of this period and go, oh, are they going to remake that? You know, you just want people to keep thinking. We have hardly touched on so many things I wanted to ask you. So, A, come back again. I'd love (laughs) to. We'll do one of your other books. And B, thank you for The Warlock Effect, which I I genuinely recommend. And it's just such a good book. Thank you. Thank you for this little treat, because it's introduced me to a whole world of things and I'm never going to look at page 31 again. (laughs) Now I have to look and see what that one is. (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. 
The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TwiceUponAPod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.